0: John 2, 1 through 11, the third day there was a marriage in Cana of Galilee and the mother of Jesus was there. And both Jesus was called and his disciples to the marriage. And when they wanted wine, the mother of Jesus said unto them, they have no wine. When they say wanted, why not? Like, hey, I, I would like some. It's saying basically we want, we lack, we do not have. We ran out. They ran out of wine. And uh, Jesus says to his mother, woman, what have I to do with thee? My hour is not yet come. And his mother says to the servants, whatever he says to do, do it. And that should be our attitude. That should be our spirit. Whatever Jesus says to do, the best thing you can do is do it. And there were set before them six water pots of stone in the manner of the purifying of the Jews, containing two or three firkins apiece. Jesus says unto them, these pots are about you know, anywhere from 12 to 17 gallons, they guesstimate. And he tells them, I want you to fill these water pots with water. And so they filled them to the brim. And he says to them, draw out now and bear up unto the governor of the feast. Jesus, interestingly enough, does not have them draw from that And do a sampling themselves or go to some lowly peasant on the backside of a table somewhere that no one really cares what his opinion is. He says, take this to the governor. Take it to the most influential person in this room. Take it to a person of renown. And how intimidating that must feel to have that water. And you are walking up to the governor knowing you just got water and you're about to serve him water when The governor would like a better beverage than that. And so the Bible says the ruler of the feast tasted the water that was made wine. And he didn't know where it came from. But the servants which drew the water knew. And that's the beauty of being a servant of Jesus behind the scenes. There's just some things you get to know other people don't get to know. You get to be in the making of a miracle. And the governor of the feast calls the bridegroom and says to him, every man... At the beginning, he says, tradition does it this way. They in the beginning of the marriage or the feast, they'll bring out their best wine. And after everybody has tasted and had that, then they bring the worst stuff out, the stuff that's not as good. But he says, you have kept the good wine until now. And focusing on verse 11, this beginning, someone say beginning of miracles, this beginning of Of miracles did Jesus in Cana of Galilee and manifested forth his glory, and his disciples believed on him. I just want to talk for the next few minutes about a good name. Jesus, I love you. And there is no name better than your name. Neither is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. I ask for your blessing, your hand to be upon this closing moment in this service, Jesus. Lord, we have praised you. We have worshiped you in spirit and in truth. Your presence is enthroned here, God. And, Lord, I pray in these next few moments that your will would be accomplished, that your word would go forth, that it would land on good ground, that it take root, that it grow, that it be fruitful and multiplied. Apply. someone say in Jesus name, Amen. I, I love this miracle, and uh, it is an amazing miracle. I guess any miracle is amazing, really, if you just sit there and think about it. It is a miracle for crying out loud. But well, this is this is pretty stellar. This is pretty incredible. The fact that you know they are in this 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 setting of a host of people and uh, you whatever kind of party you think you've ever been a part of. Uh, culturally speaking, they they, did, they outdid what we do when it comes to festivities. Uh, typically, a wedding in that day, in that setting, would go somewhere from five to seven days of celebration. And uh, that some people, it's basically after they exchange your vows, it seems the celebration is over. Uh, and that's not the will of God. We ought to invite Jesus to the wedding, and we ought to celebrate until death do us part. Amen? But here in this setting, in this situation... A uh, 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 integral part, a traditional part of the feast is that they would serve wine. And wine is a little different than how we think about it today. Now, they had straight-up liquor back in those days. They had very potent stuff back in those days. But they did not have access to clean water such as we do so easily and so accessibly. And so when you read about wine in these settings, it it's more like grape juice or at most potent stage in a social setting, it is more like kombucha, if you want to think of it like that. There's a little little tang to that, but it, it's not for the intent and the purpose of, let's get wasted here. It is, let's celebrate this feast, let's have this gathering together, and that is what is happening here. But the unfortunate moment occurs where the host is running out of the beverage, running out of certain things because... For whatever reason, they did not count enough in advance. Maybe some people showed up they did not anticipate. Or perhaps people just had a bigger appetite than they thought they would come with. And so Jesus steps in when Mary reaches out to him and says, we need you in this moment. And Jesus says, my moment, you know, is not this at this time. But Jesus listens to his mother. She kind of just pushes him a little further and says, whatever he says to do. Do it. And with permission and with that door open, Jesus now steps onto the scene. The the wine ran out, but Jesus now steps in. And God tends to intervene when we have nothing left, when we run out of something, whatever it is. And what's so beautiful in the story that God can take a basic property, a basic element such as water and make something extravagant out of it, such as wine. And God can and will and desires to do the same with each and every one of our lives. God wants you at your given point in life where you run out and you find that you don't have much to offer. There's nothing really to boast about. God wants to intervene and turn your water into wine. God wants to give you new wine. God wants to give you new birth. God wants to give you new life. And I am thankful for that. But what is interesting to me here is that he chose this to do his first miracle. You think about all the miracles that Jesus performed in the Gospels. This wasn't a life in danger. This wasn't someone's life that was about to end or in turmoil in the storm where a wave, a wave could engulf the ship, shatter it in two, and they could be drowned. It's not a situation where somebody has died and needs to be brought back to life. This miracle was not about a a person that had any particular handicap or disease or infirmity in their body. This boiled down to someone's reputation. That if they do not present wine to the governor and those in the community around him, they're going to leave with this person having a bad name. He's going to have no respect from the community. Now that sounds a little maybe odd to us. Uh, How can we relate to that? And we can maybe somewhat, if you've ever hosted somebody in your home, or if you've ever been part of a church potluck, it can be embarrassing when you run out of food and you have guests come and and so it is with church potlucks. It's the big gamble. We, we don't practice gambling unless it's called potlucks because you're gambling if you have enough food with the amount of bodies that come in. And inevitably, strangers show up. People that you haven't seen in five years show up. People that you've never seen in your life that weren't even invited show up. It's just the miracle of potlucks. It just happens to work that way. And if you've ever been in the kitchen working the potluck or as the host pastor, you know, I, I really, I don't enjoy potlucks because my stomach's in knots because I'm usually surveying the table uh, where all the food is and I'm surveying the tables where people are at and I'm looking at the plates and I'm I'm trying to do some math and I'm trying to figure out, is this going to work? And there have been a number of times it has not worked, but I thank God it seems as if there's been a shift, there's been a change and we've had more brisket than you could shake a stick at. And I'm thankful that God has provided in these past few seasons of potlucks, but it is an embarrassing thing. Has anyone ever, ever ran out of something when you had a guest come over or they came over and the food didn't turn out. It got burnt or you fought, forgot an ingredient. It's, it's an awkward feeling, especially if you are the chef The one representing him, it's always my wife. So, you know, I could always, you know, make do by just making him a good cup of coffee and we'll just have a good conversation while my wife is in fetal position in the kitchen, wallowing in just despair. And so we can somewhat relate to it, but still not on the same cultural plane as biblical times and even in certain eastern countries to this day. For whatever reason, the tradition would literally cause somebody's reputation and influence to be just crushed and removed and torn out from him or her or whoever it would be that is the host. And this is the setting that Jesus decided to perform the first miracle. Not a blinded eye, not a deaf ear, not a dead body, not someone in a storm, somebody whose name and reputation was about to be run through the mud And Jesus stepped in. It sounds a little silly to me when I just look at it. That this would trigger Jesus to step into the miraculous. And from henceforth, he goes into healing sprees. And he goes into the supernatural in which there's not enough books and volumes to contain all the works that Jesus has performed. You see, a name matters. How you are viewed affects you for a lifetime. Proverbs 22 in verse one says a good name is rather to be chosen than great riches, and loving favor rather than silver and gold. Ecclesiastes 10 and one says dead flies cause the ointment of the apothecary to send forth a stinking savor. So does a little folly to him that is in reputation for wisdom and honor. You can have something of great value. And it become vile by one instance, by one occasion. And this man that was able to have such a marriage and such a feast that that many people would show up. I mean, you ever host something and you invite people and like nobody shows up and you're really hoping somebody would. It, 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 it kind of is a low blow to the ego and it kind of can just make you feel a little less about yourself. You know it feels good like you we know, we 've had multiple uh, youth fundraiser dinners, and we got one coming up, and it felt pretty good when we had certain people from the community at that dinner. It just kind of elevated the whole setting, not that they had to be there for us to eat i 'm going to eat regardless, but it 's just like the cherry on top. you know what I, you understand what i 'm saying, and these people had enough something for the governor to show up, for the governor to be present, and that 's how much was at stake. In this person's reputation. And it can completely be altered by this moment. And sometimes we can be born into a family reputation. And it is hard to walk out of the shadow of death. Of that family reputation. Psalm 106 verses 6 through 8. The Bible says we have sinned with our fathers. We have committed iniquity. We have done wickedly. Often we are born into a cycle of sin, a cycle of dysfunction. Ultimately, you could go back through your family tree and you will find Adam and Eve. We have been born in sin and shapen into iniquity. You might've been born into a home where you may have not been physically abused and you might've been given a silver platter and a gold spoon, but still All of us have an element of being born with a bad reputation, a sinner that is lost, a sinner that is removed from God, a sinner that is on their way to a devil's hell. The Bible goes on to say in verse seven, our fathers understood not thy wonders in Egypt. They remembered not the multitude of your mercies, but provoked him at the sea, even at the Red Sea. There is this scene as the psalmist is beginning to show that there has been this cycle in the children of Israel that sin would go from one generation to the next generation and to the next generation. And we find even after the miraculous exit of the children of Israel out of Egypt that they provoked God and they stirred him to wrath and and they caused so many problems and situations. And now the, 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 the children are committing the sins That their father have committed is what the psalmist is saying here. And so it would seem as if that they are just going to keep passing the baton of sin, passing the baton of dysfunction, passing their problem, their rebellion, their sinful nature, their hard heartedness, their stiff neck into the DNA of their children. But the Bible says in verse eight, and this is so awesome. Nevertheless, he saved them. For his name's sake, that he might make his mighty power to be known. See, but God, this is not just about your name, this is not just about your reputation, this is about his name and his reputation. It may look like an awkward scene for Jesus to step into and perform the first miracle just because somebody is afraid that their name's going to be dragged through the mud because they didn't throw a good enough party. But it was more than just about that man's name and that man's reputation. It was for Jesus's name and Jesus's reputation. You got to understand that you may feel like your name is not good, that your name is not worthy, that your name is pathetic and your name brings baggage and a reputation that all of Watertown knows. But it's not just about your name. It's about his name and his reputation and what he can do for you. Would you clap your hands? Hallelujah! First John 2 12 says I write unto you little children because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. My sins aren't forgiven because I'm good. My sins aren't forgiven because I'm worthy. My sins aren't forgiven because I somehow earned it. My sins are forgiven because of his good name, his good mercy, his good grace. Stop beating yourself over the head. Say, well, I'm not good enough and I'm pathetic and I came from bad lineage and a bad family and this happened and I was raised this way. Look, don't think about your name right now. Think about the name that is a Above every other name, In the name of Jesus. You see, His very name means salvation. He has a reputation to uphold. He says, "I save you for My name's sake. My name means salvation, and if I leave you lost, and I leave everybody lost, where does that leave My name?" I want my name to be known by what it means. My name means salvation. And I'm not willing that any should perish, but for all to come to repentance. That's the power of the name. It's an insight to the character of what God intends to do and will do if you would allow him to do it. And Jesus at that wedding scene, all he needed was somebody to give him opportunity. He stood idle. He was minding his own business, being respectful. Yes, he wasn't the governor, but he was the king. And he could have did anything at any given moment by just pulling out the king card. But he wanted permission. He wanted someone to open the door. And when the door was open, the king stepped in. And the king had new wine that they've never tasted before. And they thought they've had good before. But the governor said, you saved the best for now. And that's the day we're living in right now. You thought you've had good in your life. The best is now if you would Open the door. Hallelujah. 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 Jesus. Jesus. Your name may bring sorrow. Your name may bring regret. Your name may carry a reputation. It might bring sorrow, but there's a God who can bring salvation. First Chronicles 4, 9 and 10. Jabez was more honorable than his brethren. But his mother called him Jabez. Because she said, I bear him with sorrow. How would you feel when your mother named you? Sorry, you were ever born. And that's what they would do in those days. They would name how they felt. They would name their emotion and they would tag their emotion on their lineage. And it would go into their family tree. It's it's, it's why we parents need to be very careful how we raise our children. What you say to your children, the words you use, the discipline you use. I'm not against discipline, but you got to make sure that however you use it, you are discreet with it because you want to raise up a child knowing that they are a child of God. And you want them to have a future, not growing up in despair. And she named him, sorry, sorrow, sorry, son, sorry you were ever born. This is how I felt, and that's what I'm going to name you, and that's how you're going to live under my sorrow, under my shadow of death. You want to talk about setting the course for your kid. And this cycle of dysfunction looks as if it would continue. But if you got breath, you got a prayer. And then verse 10 says, Jabez called on the God of Israel, saying, Oh, That thou wouldest bless me indeed. Oh, enlarge my coast that your hand may be with me. That you would keep me from evil that it may not grieve me. And God granted that which he requested. You just simply, no matter how sorrowful, how depressed you've been named, how depressed you've been living. If you would just reach out to God and make your requests be made known unto him. God is in the business of granting requests. God will grant it. You don't have to be with, you can, you, you can live and be named and go through all these sorrowful, horrific moments and tragedies of your life, but you don't have to stay with that name of sorrow and life and depression. God can enlarge you with a blessing. God's hand can be on your life and God can keep you from evil and God can keep grief at bay. That's all wrapped up in one single verse God says you might be born in sorrow, but I'm going to enlarge you with a blessing. You might be in a depressing situation, but my hand can be on your life. You might be feeling like you're surrounded by a family influenced by evil to name you such a thing, but I can keep evil from you and I can keep grief at bay. That's the power of God who is in this place today. Can we lift our hands? Can we invite the presence of Jesus here? Jesus, we need you right now. We need you right now. Lord, you know the names that we carry. You know, Lord, the names that we have been called by our friends. Lord, we've been called bullies. We've been called cheaters. We've been called arrogant. We've been called proud. We've been called selfish. We've been called liars. Lord, we've borne reputations before. But God, we're calling on you right now. We need you right now. We need your name, which means salvation right now a marred reputation is difficult to overcome but when you encounter the one who can change your name even redefine it you got to let people know you got to let people know and they may not believe you at first just because you went to the courthouse and got your name changed it's hard for people to call you something different john 439 through 42 the setting the scene is Opening in John four, where Jesus is at high noon at a well, which nobody goes to the well at that time because of the heat of the day, but a certain woman went there because she had a reputation, she had baggage, and she has had failed marriage after failed marriage after failed marriage. I mean, wherever you think you're at, I mean, she was on her past her fifth one, and I mean that's 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 pretty intensive, and for Hollywood standards. I mean, that's that's a lot of marriages to go through. And here this woman is in the setting and she's talking with Jesus and as she's talking with them and, you know, uh, she's got her defense up and all that kind of stuff. But Jesus starts prodding a little further. And finally, Jesus reveals himself as the Messiah. The first time he ever revealed him his identity to anybody. Was a lady who was out of covenant with God and living in sin. That's the first person Jesus revealed himself to. Not the apostles, not the religious leaders, a lady out in the middle of high noon in a bad place with a bad name. And he reveals how good his name is. What, what, an, what kind of God is this that we serve? What an amazing savior. What a loving father that he would stoop down to where we're living and reveal who he is to where we are. And all of a sudden, when Jesus says, he says, I want you to go, I want you to go tell your husband. And she goes, well, I'm not married. He goes, you're right. You're not married. You're, 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 you're you're living with this guy and you've been married five times. And she goes, whoa, you must be a prophet. And they're having this dialogue, this conversation. And ultimately she leaves the scene to run and go tell people. And the Bible, she says she left her water pot. The very reason she was there, she, she forgot all about it. She didn't care about it because she found the real water. She found the well of salvation. And so she said, you know what? I think I'm just going to fast, and I'm going to go tell people about what I found. And she ran back and began to tell everybody else. Now, remember what the time It's lunchtime. People are eating. What what if some crazy bad reputation named woman came to where you were eating and says you gotta you come on put, get, stop eating and come out to this well I know it's hot I know it's the most inconvenient hour of the day and I know I got a terrible reputation but trust me. Why would you trust this crazy woman? You know, that can't even be trusted with the marriage. And all of a sudden, the people, for whatever reason, she convinced them enough. Something in her tone, something in her voice bore conviction and persuasion. And they came all the way out to where Jesus was. And we're at verse 39. And there's the Samaritans of the city. And they believe. On Jesus after talking with him. For the saying of the woman which testified. That told him all that she ever did. Verse 40. But the Samaritans. The Bible says they asked Jesus to stay longer. And he stayed there for two days. When Jews and Samaritans would not even coincide. But this was a a, a breaking of dispensation if you will. Jesus was stepping beyond the cross into the future. The prophetic of what he was about to do. And all of a sudden the Bible says many more. Believed because of his own word. And here's what they said to the woman. Now we believe. Not because of what you said. But we heard ourselves. And now we know this indeed is the Christ. The savior of the world. They didn't even be, They did not believe her because of her reputation. But somehow something about her. Pulled people out there. Though they didn't even believe her. At the most inconvenient hour. But see, now they're in a state of belief. Why? They heard him because they heard her. And this is important that your name may not have the best reputation at the current moment right now. But when you meet Jesus... In a single moment, he can change everything. And instantaneously your name can be written down in the Lamb's book of life. But don't be surprised that after your name is written in the Lamb's book of life that you run out to tell people about the Lamb and you tell them about the life, they're not going to believe you. But keep telling them anyways until they hear them him themselves. And when they hear them, they will believe. And then they'll believe you. God has this powerful way of changing his view and his mind about you when no one else will. But eventually others will catch up if you keep letting them know what Jesus did for you. Who was the first person Jesus revealed himself to after raising from the dead? Was it an apostle? Nope. It was a woman known for being possessed with seven devils. I mean, it's it awesome listening to, to, uh, to Brother Nate today as he was in, in Sunday school class teaching. It was fantastic. I, I, if you weren't able to be here for that, listen online when we posted. It was, it was excellent. And he began to go through the lineage of Jesus. And we didn't, we, we didn't, we, we didn't practice our notes together. I didn't know he was going to speak. He didn't know I was going to speak. But it's amazing who God works through. God uses imperfect people to perform his perfect will. It's incredible that God would do such a thing. And so as Brother Nate said this morning, you know, if you have all this baggage, if you have all this sin, if you have all this problem, you are a perfect candidate for the grace, the mercy, the love, the compassion of Jesus Christ. And all of a sudden, that's where we find ourselves again at the resurrection of Jesus. This defining moment that's never occurred before. Jesus conquered death, hell, and the grave. And now he is revealing himself to a woman that was possessed with seven devils. It says in verse 9, when Jesus was risen the first day of the week, he appeared first to Mary Magdalene, out of whom he had cast seven devils. See, Jesus is here to deliver us from the old life and the cycle of dysfunction. The resurrection, he wants to enter into our lives. And no matter how many demons you have, no matter how much sin you have, no matter how much depression you have, no matter how many generations of alcohol are in your family, no matter how many generations of abuse are in your family, no matter how many generations of molestation are in your family, no matter how many generations... Of atheists are in your family. I'm telling you right now, the resurrection is here, and He wants to meet somebody, and He wants to liberate them and break the cycle. Hallelujah! Galatians one four is or Hebrews two fifteen says, "And deliver them who, through fear of death, were all their lifetime subject." To bondage. People that have lived their entire childhood, their entire adulthood, afraid to die, afraid of death, living life in fear. The Bible says Jesus came to deliver you from that fear. You don't have to be afraid to die. You don't have to be afraid of the afterlife. You don't have to be afraid of the outcome of COVID-19. You don't have to be afraid of the outcome of cancer. Look, if you've been born again, you've got new life. You got God wants to deliver you from the fear of death. God did not give us a spirit of fear. But power, love, and a sound mind. The Bible says in Galatians one four, He gave himself for our sins. That he might deliver us from this present evil world. Presently, currently, actively now. God wants to deliver you from this evil world. Because it's according to the will of God. It's according to the will of God. Second Corinthians five seventeen. If any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. All things are passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Jesus said, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he hath anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He sent me to heal the brokenhearted, preach deliverance to the captives, recover sight to the blind, and set at liberty them that are bruised to preach the acceptable year of the Lord. And for you, if last year may have been miserable, this year can be more than acceptable. This is the acceptable year of the Lord. I've shared this before already, but I'll say it again. I, I believe this year to be one of miracle and harvest. Miracle and harvest. You keep praying that in the anthem of prayer. Keep declaring that as an anthem in your prayer, in your praise, in your worship. This year is one of uh, miracle and harvest. Miracle and harvest. Because this is the acceptable year of the Lord. I believe that. If you believe that, would you lift your hands with me? I'm almost done. If we could just lift our hands and begin to say, God, I believe it. I believe it. I receive that word. I claim that word. Lord, I hold it near and dear to my heart as my own God. Lord, I speak a word of faith. It is a year of miracle. It is a year of harvest. Lord, I believe it with all my heart. I believe it with my soul. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ on earth as it is in heaven. Hallelujah. 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 Acts 9, 11 through 17 or 19, 18. I'm going to jump around a little bit. And the Lord said, this is after Saul hears the voice spoken to him. He's knocked to the ground, and God tells Saul, who is persecuting, murdering Christians, to go find Ananias. And the Lord speaks to Ananias, He says, "Go to this," uh, or to Saul he says, "Go to the street." I'm stumbling over my words. Go to the street which is called Straight. Inquire in the house of Judas for one called Saul. And so Ananias is being told by Jesus to go seek out Saul because he's praying. And he's seen in a vision a man named Ananias coming in and putting his hand upon him that he might receive his sight. And look at Ananias' reply, Lord, I heard by many of this man how much evil he has done. Paul's reputation preceded him. Many people were talking about him. Many people knew who he was. This is a persecutor. This is a non-believer. This is somebody that kills Christians. This is someone that imprisons Christians. He's an evil person. He does evil. His reputation preceded himself. And he says he has authority from the chief priest to bind all that call on your name. But the Lord said to him, you go your way. He's a chosen vessel to me. To bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel, and I will show him how great things he must suffer for my. Name's sake. Saul had a bad name and a bad reputation, but God says, I can take Saul's name and use it for my name. And that's what God wants to do with every single name in Watertown that has a reputation. It doesn't matter if it's meth, doesn't matter if it's thieving, doesn't matter if it's adultery, doesn't matter if it's hatred, doesn't matter if it's fighting, doesn't matter if it's a filthy mouth, doesn't matter what the reputation in Watertown is. The intention of God is to take that name. That's not a good name and put God's good name on it and say, this name is now used for my purpose, for my kingdom, for my will, for the furtherance of the gospel. And so Ananias goes his way. He goes to the house where Saul is praying and he puts his hands on him and says, brother, brother, And we've got to be ready to do this church because it is a year of miracle. It is a year of harvest. And I don't care how long you've known somebody or avoided somebody in this community. But when God starts working on them, you lay hands on them and you call them brother. You call them sister. You call them the family of God. We've got to have a love of God in the house of God and may go outside the house of God. And the Bible says that he was to be baptized and to be filled with the Holy Ghost. And he was healed in verse 18 and he was baptized. Paul had a terrible reputation. But one moment with God he was now commissioned and given a deputation to go forth and to spread the gospel to everybody. And over time God began to change their minds. In verse 26 and 27 in the beginning of Saul's conversion he comes to Jerusalem and he wants to join himself to the disciples. But the Bible says they were afraid of him, and they did not believe that he was a disciple. And a good name is hard to redeem when you done ruined it. But God is in the business of renaming and renewing. And so Barnabas takes him, and Barnabas brings him to the apostles and begins to vouch for him. See, others may reject you, but the church will take you. This church will take you. There's others that won't believe your conversion. They won't believe your story. But this church, we know how the blood works because it works through us. It's worked in our lives. The blood has spoken better things over us where we were lost and we were on our way to hell. But God redeemed us. Acts 28, 3 through 10. Paul gathers a bundle of sticks. This is some of the closing moments of Paul that we read in the book of Acts before he is imprisoned, he is a prisoner at this point on a ship that is shipwrecked, lands on an island. and But he is a Christian now. And he's been quite some years in his faith. Now a viper comes out, a snake comes out of the fire as he was heating and throwing sticks on the fire. And the Bible says that that snake came out and bit him in the arm and the barbarians saw this venomous snake hanging on his hand. When they call a snake a beast, that can't be a good thing. That snake's a beast. And so that's how he's got this venomous snake and he's trying to shake the thing off and it's latched on him, pumping venom. And they say this about him. No doubt. There ain't a doubt. This man's a murderer. And though he escaped the shipwreck, the sea vengeance won't let him live, but he shook that snake off and it landed into the fire and no harm came upon Paul and they looked and they watched him and observed him waiting for him to swell up, to break out in sweats, to collapse, to start going convulsions and to die. But after a great while, no harm came to him and they changed their minds and they begin to believe that he was a God now. This is obviously not Paul's goal to say, I am a God or a deity. These were these were barbarians on an island. But they begin to think differently about him. This is. This, there's something more to this man for him to survive that attack, to survive that kind of venom. But at first, they have their conclusions about him, just like most people have their conclusions about Pentecost in a place in the north where it's the frozen chosen. We don't move, we don't lift our hands, we don't clap, we don't pray out loud, we don't cry, we don't run around, we don't jump, we don't do nothing. People can draw their conclusions so quickly in this region of the north about Pentecost in this church. But you hear me right now. As we're trying to do something good after a while, if we are faithful, they will change their minds when they realize that we're not handling chicken blood and we're not having animal sacrifices and we're in our right state of minds and we can hold a job and God has transformed us and God has delivered us and God has liberated us and God took us out of the pit we were in. Then they can change their minds, but a good name. Sometimes can be difficult. You can get it instantly in the heavenly, but not so much on the earthly. And this is where we must be faithful. And the Bible says... All of a sudden, the people in those quarters in that land, there was a man named Publius, and he received them. And then the Bible says he had a father that had a fever in verse 8. He was dying of a bloody flux to whom Paul entered in, and Paul prayed. He lays his hands on him, and the man is healed. And when this was done, others also that had diseases in the island Came and were healed. The name you had that brought one kind of attention will bring a new kind of attention. Our name may not sound good to some people but if we stay faithful if we stay consistent, if we keep reaching and we keep praying and we keep laying hands and loving people and reaching out to people the moment is going to come that God will give you an open door opportunity to pray and lay hands upon the sick and them be recovered and all of a sudden it will be like a ripple effect throughout the area and people will come to get what you got a hold of. I'm telling you, we have something that is worth getting a hold of. It's the powerful thing. It not only delivers, but it will change your name. You got to realize what you got a hold of. See, Jacob didn't know what he was wrestling at first in the dark, rolling around, but he finally realized he was a hold of God and he would not let go of the angel of the Lord. And the angel of the Lord tried to escape at the breaking of day. But Jacob says, I got a hold of God and I will not let go until he changed my name. And in that moment, God gave Jacob a new name. He changed him from a liar, a deceiver, a supplanter to being a prince with God. He went from Jacob to Israel and God can still do the same thing today. We might be a liar, a deceiver, a supplanter, selfish, prideful. But if we know Know what we got a hold of and do not let go of it. God can rename and redefine you. Hallelujah. How many believe that? How many believe that? I bless your name, Jesus. I worship you, God. I worship you, God. Revelation two seventeen last verse. Huh. In the closing book of the Bible, as God is speaking to the churches, he says, he that has an ear, let him hear what the spirit is saying to the churches, to him that overcomes, I will give to eat of the hidden manna and will give him a white stone and in the stone, a new name written, which no man knows, saves them that receive it. We're reading different commentary about it. Really, there's nobody that knows. <laughs> and nobody, like, really agrees what the white stone is. And there's different sermons, different theories, etc. But the ultimate point is this. That if you make it, you're only going to make it with his name. We got to be baptized in that name. We need to call on that name. We need to pray in that name. We need to live out that name. And we overcome and make it to the end. That stone that the builders rejected. He's going to give you a stone. And no one else will understand the name that is in that stone. But you'll know. You'll know. It's like some people may not understand my behavior at times in prayer or in worship. But I know because it's personal. It's personal. And that's what it's like in heaven. You're going to get there and you're still, even though there's going to be a sea, a multitude of people, and you can feel like you're lost in the crowd in the sea of faces. I don't know how many hundreds of millions of believers are going to be. there. I, I don't know. Billions. I have, I have no idea. But he is a personal enough God to give you a personal named gift that only you and him know. We serve an awesome God. He knows you by name. And you may not like your name and you may not like your upbringing. You may not like your current circumstance. But his namesake is all that matters. And when his name is named over you and you bear and wear that name and live in that name and pray in that name, he's going to let you know, not only in this life, but in the life to come, he's going to place in your hand a white stone. And when you open your hand, you're going to see your name written there. And nobody knows that name and nobody understands that name. But at that moment, when you read it, something miraculous is going to transfer and take place. I'm thankful that God has changed my name from some sort of this heathen, pathetic person. And now I can be called a Christian. I can have the name of Jesus called over me in baptism. And his name has made all the difference as we stand together. Hallelujah. It is that name that breaks the cycle of dysfunction because you could be born into a family tree and you may bear the name and the reputation of the generations that have gone before. But if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. When you've run out, God steps in and all of a sudden he can give new wine. Where there seems to be nothing. God can completely turn everything around. The first miracle performed over a man's name and reputation in the community. That's the first miracle we all really need is God to do something with our reputation as being drugged through the mud. Because that man knew he was at his wits' end. He knew that he had nothing left in those pots. And he looked at a crowd of people in the community, the prestigious, the influential, the governor himself was there. But Jesus stepped in. He says, look. I'll take care of your reputation. A good name is rather to be chosen. Hmm. What were you called before you were called by that name? I was called an angry person. I was called selfish. I was called cocky. I was called perverse. But now I'm called by that name. Can we lift our hands if you love that name? If he's given you a new name, can you just thank him? Can you show him some appreciation right now? Can you thank the name that is above every name? God, I had a horrible reputation. Maybe you don't have a public profile, but you got a personal one. And in your mind, you keep hearing it. And you hate your name, you hate your personality, you hate who you are. No one else may know who you are, but the voice inside keeps saying something about you. There's a good name here that can be chosen. There's a good name here that can be spoken over you. And he cares about your reputation. If he could care about some reputation of a man at a marriage, at a feast in Cana, Galilee, he cares about your name. He cares about your reputation. You might have a voice that tears you down and beats you up and aggravates you and depresses you, but I'm telling you, there's another voice here. There's another name here, and that name wants to be called over you if you just call on that name. Just like Mary went to Jesus, said Jesus, well, I I need you to do something, and whatever you say to do, I'll do it. Would you just talk that to Jesus right now, God? Whatever you say to do, that will I do. I will do it, God. I'm tired of my name. I'm tired, Lord, of the voice that speaks in my head and in my mind, God, that beats me up and torments me and tears me down, God. I want your name. I want your name. I want your name. I want your name I want your name Be da da Hey la ro 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 da ra ra ra, ra. Ha, ha, ha. Hallelujah Come on, the name of Jesus is here. You can call on that name. It's a beautiful name. It's a wonderful name. It's a saving name. He could save you right now. He could save you in your situation. You might even be born again, but God wants to remind you again that his name is over you. Come on, God wants to remind some of you that it's not your name. It's not your reputation. It's his name. It's his reputation. Come on, he saved you for his name's sake. Stop being so hard on yourself. Stop being so hard on yourself. It's for his name's sake. It's for his reputation. It's for his glory. And some of us, we got to take that name. And we got to share that name. Come on, make up in our mind right now. I'm going to take that name. I'm going to share that name. I want people who don't know the name to hear the name. And they they might not believe me because, Lord, of the reputation they know about me. But, God, they're going to hear him from me. And, Lord, then they're going to believe what I believed. That Jesus is here and he knows everything everything about me and he still loves me. Hallelujah. That's it. Hallelujah.